so, so good to see you this morning. Hey, let me ask, um, how many of you, if I were to say the words loan amortization sheet, you would know what I'm talking about? A loan amortization sheet. Okay, great. You make me feel good. Because um, when Jamie and I got married back in 1996, we were privileged to be able to, uh, to purchase a small home. It was 930 square foot. And uh, we were excited about it and getting to, to, to you know, ch- check out the homes was exciting. But then we sat down to the closing. All right, we are committing to 30 years of paying a mortgage. And I, we paid $65,000 for our home um, because I did not have $65,000 as a 21-year-old guy. Uh, we borrowed it, got a mortgage. And uh, when we went to closing, uh, we, we, we knew this, but we were going to pay $65,000 at 8.5% interest, which I know is high now, but back then was normal, 8.5% interest. And uh, so in my mind, I'm like, well, $65,000 is the cost of the house. I know that roughly, you know, 10% of 65000 is 6500 Put those two numbers together, I'm going to be paying around $70,000 for this house over the next 30 years. Wow. Okay. All right. Here we're committing to it and signing paper after paper after paper at the closing until we get to this place where they slide what's called a loan amortization sheet across the the table. And the amortization sheet, it tells you how much each individual payment over 30 years goes towards the principal, the loan, and how much goes towards interest. I was quite shocked to see that paper. You're telling me that of my first monthly payment of $600, only $35 goes towards my loan and the rest goes to the bank? What what happened? And then then, then the, the answer was, well, look at the bottom. So I go all the way to payment number, I think, 360. And after 360 payments... Only $35 goes to interest, and all the rest goes to my principal. And when I looked at the bottom line, I saw that after 30 years of monthly payments for a house that cost $65,000, I would be paying the bank over $220,000. That was not a good deal. But that house is not worth $220,000. Good gracious. And in the scriptures today, in Jeremiah 32, we're going to look at another real estate transaction. Just doesn't make sense. It's not a a real good deal for this prophet named Jeremiah. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to Jeremiah 32. If you don't have a Bible but have a device, I'd encourage you to to be on that. I'll be reading from the ESV, and so uh, just so you know where I'll be at. But we're in a series called A Biblical Church. Where each Sunday, what we do is we open up the Word of God, we see what God desires in a church, and as we look at what God desires in a church, then we kind of look at our church and be like, is this what God finds? Because, well, because there's gatherings of all sorts taking place today. There's people who are gathered at athletic events, there's people who are gathered at car races, there's people who are gathered at family reunions and and, and weekend getaways entertainment venues and there's even going to be people who will in a house of worship that have nothing to do so then the question is what what makes a gathering a church does it just require a group of believers together at the same time in the same place and now we have church 
I mean, if so, could a, could a group of Christian men just get together and go to a baseball game and say, yeah, we're having church. Could a, could a group of believers take a family vacation to Disneyland and go, well, we're just having church. Or, or is church only when we sing three songs and then we have a pastor open up the word of God and, and preach? And this is, this is why we have to go to the Word of God to find the answer, because we're not looking at our thoughts and our feelings. We're looking at what God's Word actually says and how He defines a church. And I think everyone in here would probably know that this building is not the church. This building is where the church meets. The assembly of believers is the church. Well, then does that mean that anywhere a group of believers assembles, we have a New Testament church? And I'll tell you, it, it only takes a few Christians to be together to constitute a church, but just because a few Christians are together does not mean we have church. In his word, Jesus Christ, who is the founder, as, as Ephesians chapter 3 talks about, that this church was founded for the glory of God. And it is Jesus Christ who gets to define what a church is and how a church functions, not what, what you and I say. And so for two weeks so far, we've talked about, whoa, what do we find in the Bible about a church? What's a, what is a biblical church? And the purpose of the local church, in fact, the purpose of every single believer is to bring glory to God. That's why we exist, right? Disneyland does not exist to bring glory to God. Therefore, even though a group of believers are in Disneyland together, we don't have church. The NFL does not exist for the glory of God. So even though in a stadium full of people, we'll have pockets of believers, we don't have church. And two weeks ago, Pastor Mike talked about how the worship of God is the foundational piece of the church. See, you and I, we can worship anywhere, and we should worship everywhere. But one of the reasons God founded the church is for his redeemed people to assemble for the express purpose of reminding ourselves of his glory, that he is worthy of our worship, and to provide the opportunity to live out his character into the lives of one Another. And that's why we looked at the definition of a church a couple of weeks ago as a unified body of baptized believers who exist for the praise of God's glory by being and making disciples who have or, or with the appearance of Christ. So we assemble today for the praise of God's glory. That's why off a box or not because it makes me feel good or not because I have time. We're here today for the praise of God's glory. And as we, as we raise our hands and our hearts and our, our minds to, to worship God, what we should be confronted with is, is our own condition in light of his holy condition. Oh, look at God. And look at me. And look at God. And look at me. How could a God like that love a person like me? Oh, glory to you for stepping into my life, right? That's, that's why we're here, to remind ourselves of that. And worship is, is key to this because it becomes very easy for me to forget about God's glory and live for my own glory. 
But as God's glory is revealed in my life and the layers come off of my own glory as, as we lift our hearts in music and, and the music today, Miss Carolyn had no clue that every single one of those songs goes perfectly with this message. We raise our hearts in worship through music. We find God's glory as the church amongst itself loves one another. And it's why we remember through the preaching of the word that we live for the glory of one far greater than ourselves. It's the purpose of the church. It's why you need the church because you need to be reminded of that. But it's also why the church needs you because you need to remind me of his glory. And you do that when you get involved in my life. But also last week, Pastor Micah preached about the word of God. And the reason that the word of God is key to a biblical church is because the word of God is the church's authority. I mentioned Disneyland and the NFL earlier. Not only do they not exist for the praise of God's glory, but they don't follow the rule book that God gave his people. And Disneyland and the NFL have their own rule book, and, and that's not sinful because they're not existing for the praise of but we, we don't get to make up our own rules. We have what God desires for us in his word. Because as a church, our existence, our mission, and our abilities all flow out of the authority of the word of God. See, we exist for the praise of his glory. Our mission is to make disciples so we can expand his glory. And how do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us how we love one another, how we love our enemies, how we husbands lay down their lives for their wives, how wives submit to their husbands, how fathers don't provoke their children to wrath, how we engage in the world around us, always being a, we shine as lights in the world around us. That's how we, the Bible tells us, we exist for his glory and how are we empowered to do that? Well, in the word, because in the word contains when the word himself, Jesus, promised through his word, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers you as a believer to do anything God asks you to do. And so as a church, this is everything to us. Everything. We have to love it and read it, embrace it. Share it, obey it. It's everything. To me as a Christian and to us as a church, the Bible is everything. Or is it? And that's what I want to address in Jeremiah chapter 32. Because in Jeremiah 32, it's an Old Testament passage, but throughout the chapter, we're, we're going to be confronted with glaring questions. Glaring questions with whether this New Testament church on this side of the cross understands the worship and the word of God as much as an Old Testament prophet who didn't even know what Jesus was going to do. And so in Jeremiah chapter 32, well, if I were to lay a foundation, I wish I had hours and hours to lay a foundation, but I'm just going to give you a, a brief summary of what the entire 52 chapter book of Jeremiah is all about. Okay, if I could sum it up in just a few sentences, 52 chapters. Jeremiah repeatedly shared a message from God that the land of Judah 
It's the bottom two tribes that were left after the ten northern tribes of Israel were defeated. Bottom two tribes of Judah, which included Jerusalem, would fall at the hand of the Babylonians. Sometimes they're called the Chaldeans. Same thing. For their rebellion against God and their lack of repentance. But after 70 years of captivity, God would return his people back to the land he had promised him. Read Jeremiah from start to finish. You will hear this message over and over again. Judah will fall by the hand of Babylon, but after 70 years, God will restore the land. That is over and over. And Jeremiah would continually say, this is the word of God. And so we're going to see right now the condition of the land is at the point where Jeremiah's prophecies are starting to be fulfilled. Look at Jeremiah 32, verse number 1. Jeremiah 32, verse 1. One says the the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. In case you don't know that, at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So so now what Jeremiah has been saying is coming to pass. There were false prophets who said it would never happen. It's happening. But not, notice not just the condition of the land, notice the condition of the prophet, because Jeremiah, for speaking the truth, is being imprisoned. Look at the rest of verse number two. It says, And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy? And say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. If you were to read Jeremiah, Jeremiah throughout the book for preaching the truth, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is imprisoned, he's thrown in a pit and left to die, he's brought out of that pit and taken to Egypt hoping he would die. Jeremiah just continued to preach the word of the Lord and was wrecked havoc for doing so. But he kept bringing the word. And the word of the Lord for Jeremiah about the present was that Judah would fall. And he not, would not just talk about the land, he was talking about the people, because what he eventually would say is this, lay your weapons down, do not fight against Babylon, do not fight against Nebuchadnezzar, if you lay your weapons down, you will live, if you fight, you will die. That was a promise that he started to continue to preach here, you'll even see at the end of verse number five, he just says, though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. His, his message was one of doom and gloom, except every time the message of destruction came, it was followed by the message of redemption. Because he would say this, and, and I'm going to take you back one chapter to chapter 31 and just show you three quick verses about how Jeremiah would regularly bring the message of redemption, but God, but God is going to step in and bring you back. You'll be defeated, but God is going to step in and bring you back. Look, at what, this is what God says in verses 3 and 4 of Jeremiah 31. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Hey, when we hear the words new covenant, our ears ought to tickle and we ought to that's what, that, that, that's what Jesus said when he held up the, new, when he held up the cup. Like, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. There's a, there's a new covenant coming. With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Verse 38 of chapter 31. Also says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. So God is 
simply sending a message. It will be destroyed, but it will be redeemed. Okay, so Jeremiah is right there. This now, back to chapter 32, is where God says, I have a proposition for you, Jeremiah. It's about real estate. I want you to buy a piece of land. Okay, what? Buying a piece of land, not, not too bad of an idea. Except for the fact that the armies of Babylon were right outside Jerusalem. And the word of the Lord had already come to Jeremiah saying that whole land is going to be overrun. So what good would it be to buy a piece of land when you can't own it anymore? Because the enemies are going to come take it from you. That's the conundrum that Jeremiah finds himself in chapter 32, verse 6. And I want to read a couple of verses. And as we read, I want you to notice how Jeremiah not only buys, but he publicly displays what he's doing, like in the, in the eyes of a lot of people. Verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hmm, the word of the Lord came. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is Ananoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Verse 8. Then... Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field that is at Ananoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Ananoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Like, this is, this is again, this is crazy. God tells Jeremiah, go buy some land, it's going to be overtaken and you won't have it anymore. But take the deed, put it in an earthenware vessel similar to what we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in where things were saved for hundreds of years. Put it in, a, put it in an earthenware vessel. And like, good night, this is so ridiculous. What a waste of money. This doesn't make any business sense whatsoever. God, what are you thinking telling Jeremiah to do that? Jeremiah, what are you thinking doing that? And I, I think what God was thinking is pretty simple. I'm not going to say it's easy, but I think it's simple. He's saying, Jeremiah, put your money where your mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is. You keep telling the people that the land's going to be overrun, but don't worry because God will bring you back after 70 years. And so, Jeremiah, act in a way that shows the people around you, you believe my word. Obey me. And buy a piece of land that seems utterly ridiculous and worthless. And put my glory on display by obeying my word in a business deal that makes no sense. And when the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, he did it. Like that. And we know why. Because right after he buys the land, he goes to do a prayer. And I want you to notice the first 
verses of this prayer, verse number 17 and 18, is Jeremiah says to God, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, Lord of hosts. Why would Jeremiah do such a foolish thing and spend money in such a crazy way? Because he had already decided in his heart what he believed about God. God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. The heavens with your big right hand. You can do anything, you great and mighty God. He had already figured out that that's what he believed about God. So when God's word came to him, immediate obedience followed. Worship, word. We stand and we sing songs like Aaron led us in. Lead me, Lord. I will follow. And you know why we don't follow? Because we don't really believe in the same God that Jeremiah was describing that he believed in. Oh, we don't mind gathering together in church and worshiping God and getting our hearts to feel great. But when God says, I want you to step out and do something that makes no sense to everyone around you, except you know my word. And I've been telling you to do this and you won't do it. You must understand I am the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're like, but but pastor, I don't know. Yeah, see, Jeremiah kind of, I feel like Jeremiah kind of goes through this. Because at the end of his at the end of his prayer, verses twenty four and twenty five, it almost seems as if he's a bit insane. This is what he says, verse twenty four: Behold, the siege mounds, meaning the, the hills where they will come over the over the walls. The siege mounds have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke, he's speaking to God. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, it's almost like, God, you see what I'm seeing, right? You see, you see what I'm seeing? You see what I'm seeing? I know what you said, but you see what I'm seeing? Was that really what I, was that really? Check out God's answer. Verse 26, the word of the Lord. There we go again. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, behold, I am the, I just love God. I got to picture God's voice. I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? It's like God goes back to Jeremiah and said, what did, what did you say about me when you started this prayer? Oh, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and just harm. Nothing is too hard for you. And now you're questioning, hey, do you know who I am? I am the God of all flesh. There is nothing too hard for me. I know what I'm doing. And God kind of puts that down in the next couple of verses as he, as he says, well, these people have done nothing but evil in my sight. 30, he says, and it's 32, the kings and the officials and the priests, everyone has turned their back to me. They built places of worship, verse 35 says, where they offer their own children to idols. Huh. But then we come to verse 37. I, I know what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. But, but don't forget what I said, verse 37, as God's assurance comes to his covenant, his covenant people. Behold, 
I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Why? He made a covenant with those people. And it wasn't based on what they did always. It was also based on his character. That's why when he made this covenant with Israel, he put Abraham asleep in Genesis 15. And Jesus, I'm sorry, God walked through the, the, the split, the, the, the split animals by himself in two forms saying, I will be faithful. And when you're not faithful, I will take the punishment. And he says, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. And Jeremiah by the land because it's going to be bought and sold again. If you read the last two verses of this chapter, it's exactly what it says. This land will be bought and sold again. Oh, you know what that means? That means when this land bought and sold again, guess who owns the land? Huh? Not Jeremiah probably because he'll probably be dead at some point, but his children and his great-grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, people he will never meet will benefit and gain an inheritance because of his obedience to the word of the Lord because he worshiped God with all of his might. And I'm just thinking, you know how many people we're trying to save up money for our kids and our grandkids. We're trying to make their life a lot easier than ours was and we'll pack it away and pack it away and pack. Hey, let me ask you, would you rather have your children when you're dead have a trust in your 401k or a trust in the God that you obediently serve no matter what he said? Because you believed in him, that he was the God that created the heavens and the earth and anything he wanted to do, he could do. And anything he asked you to do, he would empower you to do it. Oh, man, stop thinking you have to provide for your children. Provide an example for your children of obedience, immediate obedience to the word of the Lord. Sorry, I got to catch my breath. And God shows not only his assurance to his covenant, but he shows an assurance to his new covenant. Remember, we, we read that new covenant? Remember we read that new covenant? Oh, check this out. As we read these next couple of verses, put in your mind, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. That's God talking. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring them, uh, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. And I'm thinking as I'm reading this, like, oh, what a blessing that we're on this side of the cross. Because you have to understand exactly what's being said here. On this side of the cross, the covenant was based on the people's actions. And when they turned from God, he would bring, uh, he would bring harm their way so that they would return to him in repentance. We have our own idols. We live in our own rebellion. We turn from God so regularly. But you know why we don't feel the wrath of God? Because of that right there, Jesus took it all. 
All of the wrath of God on all of our sin was placed upon the back of our Savior and he died so that now God can only pour out goodness to us. That's why Romans 8 once says, there is therefore now no, zero, none, nothing, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All he has to pour out on us is good. Oh, what? Savior. All the disaster, all the wrath, all the indignation for our sin. Jesus absorbed and all of the glory and all of the beauty of the covenant relationship between the Father and the Son was given to us simply because we believe. Oh, oh what a deal. What a, what a deal. So what? What does that mean for, for you and me today? Remind yourself of God's glory. Stand in awe who he is. Jeremiah did not stand up and preach to the people because the words that he had to say were great words. He stood up and preached to the people because the words that he said came from a great God. And they weren't great words. They were words of condemnation, but they were also words of restoration. And you know, sometimes as a preacher, you, you want to tiptoe around the fact that we are all sinners condemned for a hell apart from God. You don't want to tell people that today. You really hurt their feelings and they may never come back into church. But at some point we have to understand, I'm not telling you the word that I want to tell you. I'm telling you the word of the great God that we serve and we will spend eternity in hell apart from God for our sins if we never place our faith and trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so if you've ever done that, when we stand and we sing and we raise our voices in praise as Aaron leads us, do we understand we are talking to the creator of the heavens and the earth who formed everything by his great power and his outstretched arm and he is the wielder of justice and we are guilty and yet that arm of justice came down in love upon his son rather than on us? Huh? How do I not stand and say, lead me, Lord, I will follow. I mean, I see what you did. I have no other choice. As we sing, as we open up our word, remind ourselves of God's glory and stand in awe of who he is. The greater you see God, the less you will think of yourself the more glory there is to fill. Secondly, rehearse God's promises daily. Open God's word and your heart. You know, I read some of the prophets sometimes in the Bible, and one question is like, how did they hear that? How did they know that's what God said? I don't, I don't know the answer, but, but I do know that it's, it's obvious they were living and listening for God's word. We're going to have a very hard time, church, living for God's glory with a closed Bible. But, but you understand the condition that the Bible sits in in most homes. 
See you, on, see you next Sunday. When this podcast is close, how are we to be excited? That the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. I will not be afraid. If this Bible's days close, how are we to be reminded that the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. That he walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And because he does, I will have to fear no evil for you are with me. If this Bible is closed, how do we remind ourselves of the promise? Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If this Bible's day is closed, how do we remind ourselves when we sin that Jesus paid for our sin? And Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If our Bible stays closed, how do we remind ourselves that it is in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses because of his riches of grace? If this Bible stays closed, how do we remind ourselves that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father? And if we think we haven't sinned, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we if we do sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we remind ourselves of those truths if this Bible stays closed? And you know why we struggle so much to step into areas that seem crazy? Because we don't hear God very often. Can't tell you the number of times I've heard this recently. Oh, this world. Oh, this world, so dark. I'm glad. I, I wish my kids weren't growing up. In, I wish my grandkids didn't have to grow up in a world like this. It's so. You see, when we look at the promises of God in the Scripture, it changes our view. We don't change the. the we don't change the future. Or we don't. Sorry, we don't view the future in light of the present. Oh, it's so dark out. My, my kids are going to grow up in a world that's terrible. We don't view the future in light of the present. We view the present in light of the future. This world is now my home. I was never promised to have it easy and wonderful and a happy life. Like that's going to happen when I get to my eternal home in glory. That's when I will have peace and comfort and I will enjoy all the riches that are, are there in heaven. I will do that. But right now, I am called to sacrifice if needs be. I am called to lay my life down if needs be. And you know what? Even though the world is dark, could we ever think that what a wonderful time for our kids and our grandkids who are filled with the light of the glory of God to stand out as a beacon in this dark world for the goodness and grace of our great God. I mean, the Bible does say that children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. Train your children, train your grandchildren to have the glory of God inside of them and then step back and say, God, they're all yours as he pulls back the bow and launches your children and launches your grandchildren into a darkened world where the light of Jesus stands out even more boldly than ever before. We can view the future in light of the present. We can view the present in light of the future.
if we open up the word of God. And last, respond in obedience to God's voice. Extravagant, sacrificial obedience. See, Jeremiah had already developed a trust in God. So his obedience to God's word was natural. I know who you are. You say that to me. Okay. It's natural. The promises of God were enough to move him to action. And cost was no barrier. Invest in something that's worthless. Okay. You told me to. I will. You know what? There are times as a church we need to step out into extravagant and seemingly absolute foolish obedience. Because we know the one who told us. It's exactly what Jesus did. When he stepped out in Philippians chapter 2, the one who was in the form of God but did not count equality, did not count, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's our Savior. That's the length of obedience he went to. What's God calling you to? So I have one question, and then I'm done. Would our church, this church, today, be defined as extravagantly and sacrificially obedient to the word of God because we recognize the worth of the God we worship. Hmm. Would our church be defined as extravagantly and sacrificially obedient to the word of God because we recognize the worth of the God we worship? If we say, probably not, then we can't forget, we are the church. If this church isn't extravagantly and sacrificially obedient to the word of God because we understand the worth of the God we worship, then we better look in the mirror, each of us. What's God asking you to do? Well, pastor, I don't have the time. <laughs> Tell that to Jesus someday. <laughs> but, but pastor, my, I can't afford to tithe. I can't give that. I can't go there. I can't do... Is this church a church that is a group of believers who are extravagantly and sacrificially obedient to the word of God because we understand the worth of the God we worship? And that comes down to you and it comes down to me.